Sleepy Computer. Hey, this is Sleepy Computer, a podcast where we use AI to try and write short, creative stories uh, and then read them out to see how kind of nonsensical they are. We've been going for a little while now, so if you're new to the podcast, I might suggest that you listen to the most recent episode first, and then you can always come back and listen to earlier episodes later on. Okay, welcome to Sleepy Computer. Welcome! Uh, this is a podcast where we use uh, AI, artificial intelligence, to generate stories. And then read them out. Yeah, we read them out together. It's kind of similar to predictive text. Yes, but with whole sentences or paragraphs generated at once. So it's, it ends up being quite random. And wild. For the first story, I want suspense or a mystery or maybe even murder. Okay. <laughs> Let's uh, put those parameters into the computer and see what story it generates. Uh, here we go. I'm just typing them in now. Great, that's it. Okay, and now we will now generate a story. Here we go. Okay, awesome. Let's crack. Oh. Oh. Right, okay, awesome. Uh, well, let's crack on. The sun was only just starting to set over the Chicago skyline, but the sun still shone brightly into the room, creating a great feeling of security and safety. The room wasn't cramped like most of the places he'd spent the better part of 20 years in. It was comfortable and spacious, with everything you could need, just in case. It felt great. John Meeks, an eminent detective with the Chicago Police Department, was on the tail of one of the better-known crime bosses in Chicago. The legendary Mr. Wayne Wayne. Okay. Well, Mr. Wayne Wayne. Mr. Wayne Wayne is is like no. Hang on. Don't be thrown around, Mr. Wayne Wayne's name. No, no. It's Mr. Crazy. Wayne Wayne will get you. Oh, I believe it. He was wanted by the Chicago State Attorney, who had found him running a notorious prostitution ring. Wayne ran a sophisticated criminal syndicate that took advantage of the city's poor public transportation system, with his numerous vehicles and drugs, and the numerous prostitution gangs that sprang up throughout the city. John was a very intelligent man, and he was interested in all aspects of the underworld. But he was always one step behind, and often had a bad heart. He liked gambling, but when he needed to go down, John took it out on other people, not the other way round. It's just not right, John murmured. We have more criminals running around our city than you can imagine, and our public transportation has many serious flaws. John looked around at everything within earshot of him. He was pacing, addressing his team. He seemed to know all of them intimately. He could smell them through the air. No one likes crime, and it is the wrong sort of crime. A bad-natured, nasty one. He let his words hang a moment and smiled. Lucy was the first to respond. It is all wrong, and there are some really decent police officers out here that would do anything to protect us. Like me! She looked around her at the faces of those in the line before her, with the smiles growing as she tried to see what was so strange in them. Lucy was smart. She'd been in law enforcement for a long time before being chosen to become a member of the police squad, which, while they were nice men, were just like her. Cold, serious, and boring. John had been lucky enough to meet Lucy in school after he was asked to give a talk. He saw her potential immediately. Ten years later, she's still doing what she does well, trying to change the world in an innovative way. 
But what about crime in the future, John? We should work towards an integrated policy on crime in the society to tackle crimes at an even better rate. John nodded, then asked, Are there any people you would like to help? Wow, John changed. John changed. I don't know what John used to sound like. Uh, he was more like this, oh, okay, and right. I don't know well, what that's, happened. That's notes for you. Uh, do you want to do it again? Yeah, hold on. Are there any people you would like to help? She hesitated for a moment, her eyes glinting like an angel's, as she responded. All the people in this room, of course. Wayne Wayne had recently started work on a cunning scam. He was going to steal the money out of the trust fund of the city of New York to pay his gambling debts. New York? No! I know. Oh, Wayne Wayne. But, like, why is that the responsibility of the Chicago police? We're not quite sure. It doesn't matter. When he realized he wouldn't be able to take out the money, he took it into his own hands. He'd already stolen money from a bank in another city before, but this time he decided to try the big city. He pulled the heist of his own creation, robbing a bank on the other side of the country, but he didn't know he'd run out of money. He tried to keep the heist quiet by not reporting it to the police. A tried and tested method of of keeping criminal activity under the radar. Well, yeah, just, just don't, don't phone it. Just don't phone it in. Just don't tell. Just anybody. don't phone it in. It's fine. It's simple. The city cops had seen his name come up though on the list of names that were released every time someone did a crime. <laughs> so, like, even before his first crime, they just they it's were like, like <laughs> "Can I just? Can you try saying Wayne Wayne was well respected?" Wayne Wayne was well. Oh, <laughs> there we go. Wayne Wayne was well respected in the underworld, but it didn't seem likely that Wayne Wayne would survive long. John had been tasked with tracking Wayne down with his crack team of detectives. So far, they'd found nothing, but this new lead had him stumped. He'd been on patrol when luck struck. It came from the first person they came across that evening: a young male wearing a bright red T-shirt. His hood pulled over his head. He was walking a friend home. And then he took a wrong turn, going to a neighborhood park. John could see the suspect's hands as he approached the two men. I told him, come here. John would later retell to another detective. And he said, no. I said, come here. I'll show you. He pulled his own t-shirt over his head and held out his arms. John had no fear for his life. But as soon as he saw the man's face, it was clear that the kid had some serious beef. He started to shout at him. What do you know about the location of Wayne Wayne's home? John yelled back. No one knows, the kid said. No one knows where Wayne Wayne's home is. We don't know who he is. John immediately thought. Bullshit. He had a strong feeling about this kid. He'd seen him in the neighborhood before, and he knew that he was a violent guy. He asked the kid to explain himself, and the kid did. He said he came from a very wealthy family. But he never had a chance in life. So after a few years, he decided to change his life. He started working in the McDonald's down the street, and he was making pretty good money at that time, even though he was only 20 years old. I mean, you've got to respect the hustle. Oh, the hustle is strong. The, the, the hustle is strong with this one. One day, he decided he needed to see a lot of girls, so he went to a sex shop down the road. Well, this took a turn. The only problem was, this shop was full of cops and security <gasps> guards who were all watching the place. He told them that he was a guy trying to see girls, and he got caught in the crossfire. He was shot and killed on the spot. He's dead? Uh, yeah, 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 he's dead. He's been dead the whole time. He's a ghost! He's a, he's a ghost. 
It was a pretty bad night for the neighborhood. A slight, <laughs> yeah, under, a slight understatement. I think it's a pretty bad night for him. It was a bad night for McDonald's. Oh shit! The police department was really pissed about it, and ever since the kid had been shot and killed, he was seen as a troublemaker. What's your name, kid? John asked the kid. Slim. The kid replied. My name's John. The cop responded. I'm the officer that's been sent here to investigate your death. Slim, you gotta listen to me. John said. If you don't listen to me, you'll end up dead. What are you talking about? Slim asked. I'm talking about you, son. You're a troublemaker and you're gonna be dead. I'm taking you downtown. I'll give you a ride to the police station. John pulled him into the cops department and told the receptionist at the front desk that Slim has to obey him like some big ass dude. The the receptionist had tears flowing down her beautiful and round red face. Any theories on how this kid knows Wayne? Barked John to the room of detectives. Detective Scott walked in, a sad look on his face. No, John, no theories, said Chief Bogo. It's just one of those things. John leaned forward. It's really not one of those things, he said firmly as he stared down at the picture of the girl with her eyes shut, with a blank expression and a single tear falling down her cheek. What? said Chief Bogo, looking at the picture. But it says Diana! It says Diana! shouted John as he threw the picture on the floor in rage. Ah! Who can tell me the significance of that? Detective Scott rushed across the room to join the others with a hollering, furious grunt when something snapped under him as if there wasn't enough room to handle the situation. A silence hung in the air as the detectives looked blankly at each other. Does nobody know? barked John. He continued, I guess it means we'll find out in about four days' time if and when my little brother actually says goodbye to the devil. Then suddenly his fists started to grow big. He stormed out of the office, ashamed of his poor choices. <laughs> his poor choices for his fists to grow so big. I think he's like, is it channeling like the Hulk? I think so. Like he's about to Hulk out. Yeah. Well, but Maybe mean, that's a character trait that will come back to you. Like his brother. Yeah. Oh, oh, sorry. I completely like, glossed over his little brother saying goodbye to the devil. What, what does that even mean? Like, Why does his brother know the devil? An hour later, John closed the door behind him in his apartment alone and turned on some soft jangling drums and a violin piece and turned the light on. Ooh, this is nice. He was so exhausted that he was still sitting at the window. How was he going to crack this case? They had no leads. But the police were smart and they put the police detective in charge of this case, and he'd put his brain on the case. You know, I used to tell myself that my head is as big as a bus, he thought. Listen, your head is bigger than a bus, and it's full of water. So I guess your head is just like a giant soaking wet bus. So I googled this because I was pretty confident that it was impossible that that could have been generated. Right. But it's uh, there's no such thing as your head is a giant soaking wet bus. In no way is that not a compliment. He only had to focus and put his brain to the task. Who was Diana? Was she alive? Was she in trouble? Was she in danger? Was she dead? Was she dead? Everyone else is dead. <laughs> he couldn't tell. He didn't know. He'd been working on this. On this for a long time. For decades. And yet it was difficult. The people he worked with were his peers. If his plan failed, they might consider his career a failure and abandon him. And he had come closer, and he was almost there. 
He sat on the edge of his king bed, wearing no shoes. His top half covered in dark green clothing he found in an underground shop on his route from Tokyo. I miss you, Sally. You're the greatest person ever. And I can't have you here. Can I? John was unable to see his wife since the divorce is under seal. And the state law says that a husband can't see his wife for a few years. I don't think the state has any say in what is in the divorce, so it's up to the parties, and sometimes courts can be kind of mean. John thought if it had been him, he probably would have just paid the $3,500 to have his wife's name removed from all the bankruptcy papers. When it comes to the divorce and the legal issues involved, the wife has the right to a spousal support check from him at any time. <gasps> we want prenup. We want prenup. Yeah. And she should also have the right to a percentage of his money when he's out of the country. The divorce and legal issues are just part of his life. This year has felt more intense for John, because last December, on May the 19th, we watched him go and jump off Mount Olympus without the ropes. Wait, who's we? We, the narrator. Okay. He enjoyed hiking all year with his family, before a few things broke the bank. His health had gotten worse with his arthritis. Lots of it in the winter here. The phone rang. John is trying desperately now to answer it in an unusual tone of voice, but doesn't seem too sure or eager or prepared because that kind of voice usually isn't good. Hello there, mister, said John as he picked up the line, sounding almost desperate. He had tried too hard. John, it's Jeff from the station. Could you please come through at 10.45 and be in my kitchen by 10.45? How odd for the most unprofessional man ever to try and make conversation in his living room. What's going on with you guys? Is it really important? I'm missing the dinner party and I'm not sure if I can get back to work. No, it's fine. The kid's in the hospital and we're going to have to take him to the hospital. What? Shouted John. He couldn't believe it. Why the hell would he be talking so openly with Jeff? And how would Wayne manage to get to the kid? What did he want? I'll be right there. I just need to finish off this dinner party. I actually really hate it when that happens. When I get it's, called back into the office during a oh dinner party. Oh my god, during a dinner party that that's just yourself. Yeah. <laughs> just you on your own. Just you and your but own. Like the, ready, your, the ready meal's in the oven now. It's the, it's the divorce dinner party. Ready meal's <laughs> for himself. Is it table for one? Just table for one, please. Table for one, Gato for three. <laughs> John ran downstairs and ushered his guests into the room where they were eating. So there are guests. There are there are guests. They were shocked when John walked in, wearing only a thin white bathrobe. I like the qualifier thin. Thin, as in translucent. Like, you can see everything. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, John said. It's good to see you all here. The room erupted in cheers and applause. John continued... I'm sorry, ladies, but we're all going to have to eat a little later, or we're all starved to death. John ran out of the room and into his car. Why does he have to go out like that? Linda asked. What is he doing? What does he want? Where is he going? Do you think John has any money? John sped off into the night, never coming back to this party again. Oh my god. What's going to happen in part two? Well, I don't know. What do you think? What, well, who have we... Which characters have we generated? We've generated John, obviously. John is... He's gritty, isn't he? He's gritty and gruff. He's um, gruff. He's, he's, he's not best pleased. No. He's not, he's not a happy man. Slim, the, the, the kid yeah. in the jail cell. So he's in hospital now. Mm. I mean, can you imagine walking into a hospital and then just <laughs> a fully dead man arrives who died... He's like 10 years dead. 
Why why do you think um like what do you think he has? Like do you think he like stubbed his ghost toe? <laughs> um Well it's like how do you kill someone who's undead? I guess there are films about this. Mm-hmm. But maybe he maybe he's had a stake driven through his heart. Oh, maybe. Or like they said his name backwards. <laughs> like we've got to operate. His his name has been said backwards. He's losing a lot of ectoplasm. That's that's that is what would happen. Uh can we talk about Jeff? And Jeff's like unrealistic time expectations. Oh, I don't, I don't know why he would. Um... Well, we've learned that the kitchen, <laughs> the kitchen where Jeff works, yeah, is less than one minute from the entrance to the station. If he can get to the station at ten forty-five and be in the kitchen by ten forty-five, we know that is at most like a fifty-nine second walk. So, do you think he lives in his kitchen? I think he lives there. He obviously just works late. I, I, we assume 10.45pm. Or maybe they're having a coffee. Maybe oh, like, wait, wait, hang on. The kid's in the hospital. Yeah. That's a good point. So why isn't Jeff sending John to the hospital where, where the kid is? <laughs> they're like, by the way, just so you know, that your witness, yep. or your, your suspect, sorry, is, is in the hospital. By the way... Um, Would you like a latte? I, mean, I, don't, I don't think I'd leave a dinner party for that. Um, the McDonald's shooting... That's oh, not good. and he was dead the whole time. I just, I just think it's. I actually think this is an interesting comment on Vice because he just started to get his life back together. He was making good money at McDonald's, um, yeah, and you, you can, by the way. Let's, yeah, let's, you absolutely let's get that can. Absolutely on the record. Anyways, he was making good money at McDonald's, and then the Vice grips him that need to, and I quote, see a lot of girls. Uh, the, the sh- <laughs> it's not explained why the sex shop was also full of of policemen. Lucy, we meet. You know, John meets Lucy at school, which is odd. Mm. Um, but it, it seems like he was there to sort of scare them straight type thing. And she's smart, too. And then, out of the blue, she comes up with some pithy thoughts on not only what they should do immediately, but how they should develop, like, criminal policy. Uh, an integrated policy on crime. So, I'm thinking... Crime le- in the society. In, sorry, sorry, in the society. I, I'm I'm seeing leadership potential from Lucy. Oh yeah, no, she's like give it like I'd say another six months. She's gonna she's, replace Bogo. She's gonna replace Bogo or be at the home office. Well, that kind of is where we're at now. Um, we're now gonna generate the second half of the story um, and then see how all these different loose ends get tied up. I mean, I'm excited. I look I, forward to it. I am too. Great. Yay. John's 1982 Dodge Charger, with John's last name painted on it, screamed down the street. He was losing no time in leaving the party. He simply had to get himself to the station before the police got there. How was the kid? What were they going to do? They should be in charge. He pulled up outside a police precinct and picked up a yellow ticket. When he arrived at the station, the officer said to him, You're lucky there was not anyone around. John responded, Well, then I could just be arrested. The officer, a rookie, responded by saying, I hope no one sees any drugs on you. Mister, that would be a mistake. John said as a matter of fact that one of the officers did see drugs on him, but he was not arrested. He burst into tears and said, I'm sorry. I'm addicted to drugs. It's the divorce, and I'm not going to be able to pay my rent or pay back that money that I owe to my ex-wife. The officer said, Well, you're not going to be arrested, are you? John replied, No, I'm not, because I have a special license to carry a gun, and I'm not going down without a fight. The officer said, Well, ain't that a good thing? John replied, Yes, 
Because I'm the only one who can stop the police from arresting me. And I need to be out on the streets. And I need to be able to protect myself and the wider community from crime. It's basically my job to do that. Because I am a trained and armed person who does that every day in exchange for my income. But I thought the job of a police officer couldn't take drugs, said the rookie. When I became a cop, I was on the drug squad, so to speak. But now I have found out that I can still get high, but it's only in the back of my mind and not with the guys that I work with and protect. He admitted it was an emotional time for him. It's tough. I know. I know how hard it is. I know how much it's going to hurt, he said. And that's my job, to keep everybody safe. And I can't do that. I'm not going to take that risk. It's time to move on, and hopefully I can move forward as a police officer and a firefighter as we have reached this age of 20, in which the law gives me an immunity from being found responsible. The officer walked away angry, but looking much stronger now, thinking about how much he didn't understand about why his young girlfriends loathed him. John walked into the back room and stormed up to Jeff. Jeff! He said. I love what you are doing with your hair! My life as a patrol lieutenant in Chicago has given me such pride and such baldness. Suddenly he remembered what had happened to Slim, his star witness. He couldn't believe that Wayne Wayne had hurt Slim just so. What happened to Wayne Wayne? What went wrong and allowed this to happen? What is your attitude to our police officers? Do you hate those that stop and treat them kindly? Or do you just want others to respect them? Jeff was taken aback. His head felt like it were a balloon, and his hair began twinkling again. John loved it when his hair seemed as shiny as a Christmas tree. John! He cried. I'll tell you the truth. Slim was alone in his cell when suddenly Wayne Wayne entered the cell and hit him right down on his cheek and knocked him unconscious. Then Wayne Wayne went to the shower and I saw him take his clothes off and go into the shower. That was the beginning of the end for my dear friend Slim. What do you mean? What did you do? Asked John, looking at Jeff and his sparkling hair. I could only tell you what I saw, because it was so dramatic that even my mother wasn't able to believe it when I told her about it later that night on the internet on her Facebook page. I mean, that's odd. That's an odd thing for somebody who's supposed to be supervising a prisoner to do. To post it on his to, face to not only be like Facebook page to be criminally negligent, yeah, in public office, yeah, and then be like, I know what this needs: social media. It needs photographic evidence. And I, I don't know if John's the kind of person who's going to know what Facebook is. What's that? Asked John. Oh, well, there we go. There we go. Doesn't know what it he is. Doesn't even know. Absolutely no idea. He didn't have a clue what he was talking about. He didn't have Facebook, but he did have Twitter. He has Twitter. He liked that. So he knew what it was about. It's a website where I offer to help people with their hair and makeup needs, as well as readings about their daily life and personal goals in regards to their lifestyle. I'm going to leave now, said John, because now I know what he really did and what kind of person he is. Wayne is a very, very sick and sad man. 
I can't wait to see him today in court when I bring him his sentencing. You want me to take my daughter and go home to Florida? Asked Jeff with a smile on his face, not knowing what he was supposed to say. What? Why? Why is Jeff? Why is why Jeff? Why is he smiling? What well, does he know that we don't? But why is Jeff's takeaway from this conversation that he should go to Florida? Like, I, I mean, I'd like to think I've been following the narrative, but this is this is a at best a spurious request for annual leave. I, I feel as though um, he that's just what he wants, and he's just kind of putting it <laughs> this into, is a, into this is an Oh, so maybe he's wanted to be like moved to Florida for years, and yeah. he's gradually increasing the amount of incompetence he shows at work Basically, until he gets what moved. what he's doing is Inception. Right. He's Inceptioning John. Right, I see. No, I would only want you to do that if the court decided that you had broken the law and needed to be in jail. They both knew it was time to go to the hospital. It's been like 20 years, Jeff, said John. I really should be getting the doctor or something. John rushed across town to the front door of the hospital, only stopping to get a nurse to inspect him, which she did as quickly as possible considering his sizable chest and fat abdomen. Rude. That's a rude description. It's sizable. Sizable chest. She said he looked like a person who had never had a job and who was homeless, and that he was in great shape, although John could not place any particular reason for his lack of health. He walked up to the reception desk and asked for a seat, but the nurse in front of him refused even though she was very tired. And John asked her what sort of treatment he would need her for. She wasn't having any of it, and told him the doctor knew where Slim was. The hospital's morgue, where all the unconscious corpses were taken every day. Oh, so Slim's dead. Slim is... But we already knew that Slim was dead. Slim's dead twice now. He's a ghost! John was taken aback. He'd been found in the morgue many times in the past, but never yet on official business. Never on official errands. And yet this time, he had actually been taken there. It was a sad place to be, and he couldn't think of anything worse than to enjoy a meal here. Enjoy a meal here. In the romantic setting of the morgue. (laughs) Yeah. The doctor walked in and said, I want you to take your clothes off, but you are still under sedation. Don't touch me. I'll call your doctor. John said, You are a doctor, and your clothes are off, replied the doctor. What sort of sedation do you want me to put you under? Doc, I'm here about sick people, replied John. More specifically, about someone who wants me to find out what happened to this poor young man. I think he was murdered, and he would never have died in that manner otherwise. John, the cause of death was very suspicious. He was iced. It's a classic medical terminology you know the patient was iced (laughs) on arrival 346 the patient was iced (laughs) he was iced without any evidence of struggle no trauma to the neck and his lungs were not congested it was clear he had been dead for a very long time if you don't want me to go on with the details of what i believe i'm afraid i'll have to leave you The first thing you're going to have to do is tell me what you believe. My theory about the cause of death is the murderer entered his cell and threw him out the window. If we do not know how he came to get out of prison, that means that there was a struggle. That is my theory. 
We have no witnesses, no bloodstains on the walls. The doctor had a strong opinion that he was murdered by a member of the American Civil War in order to bring an end to the struggle. And he was the victim of a hate crime against all the prisoners at the prison who were afraid... (laughs) Oh, I was doing so well. Who were afraid of the rise of the machines. Who did this? John asked. I think it was someone who had reason to silence him. Or reason to murder him, replied the doctor. Either way, I think it's a crime against humanity, and I'm going to make sure that the American government is interested in investigating this with all of their resources. John furrowed his brows at the information he knew. This was going to be another very long day of work, and if he knew something important, the people involved would be dead. Or worse, killed. Take him to the lab, please! John begged. We need to talk to someone. Someone is going to know about the inhumane death process of my friend. If he was murdered, this is what we must do. John didn't get home until the morning of June the 6th, 1945. We now know where it when We it's now set. know where it's set, yeah. After much work and a little satisfaction, oh, Ooh. he took time to visit the prison, to talk with the prisoners, see the prisoners in their cells, and taunt them. Even if he knew no one was going to listen. He slept for approximately 20 hours that evening, but woke up around 9am, just in time for breakfast, and a pint of tea. A whole pint? A whole pint of tea. He made it into work for 10am, and immediately bumped into Lucy, who had something to tell him. Good morning, John, said Lucy. I'm very tired, but it would be great if we could go to sleep soon. I'll give you a few more minutes, said John as he reached into his pocket and pulled out a couple of money. Great, thanks, John, said Lucy. So what do you want to talk about? I want to know what happened to my witness, said John. I don't know what happened to him, but I know he was murdered, and I want to get to the bottom of it. I might be able to help you, said Lucy. I know there's a lot of evidence, and if you have any ideas, let me know. What evidence have you found? asked John. Well... I found a piece of paper with a couple of letters from Wayne and a couple of other people in prison. I also found a copy of the Book of the Law and the receipt from the London Police Museum for the purchase of a new police watch. John was shocked at the information that he had just received. He was then told that Wayne had been a member of the London Police before he turned to crime and that he'd been arrested for the murder of a woman called Diana. Diana! Diana's back. Oh, I didn't. I honestly did not think that she would be back. There had been a trial for the murder of Diana, and the jury had decided that Wayne had murdered her, and that he had been convicted of murder. He was sentenced to 14 years for her murder, and when he started his sentence, he was offered a pardon in exchange for his silence about the crime, and it was accepted by the governor of the British Empire, Sir Edward Percy. Oh! Okay, for, okay, okay. <laughs> Two things. Two things. Sir Edward Percy is a perfect name. I googled it. Doesn't exist. But also... Yeah. The governor of the British Empire. Governor of the British Empire. Yeah. The, uh, that position still exists today. Oh. It's actually me. I knew it! Wait, the Polaroid photo. Could it be of that same Diana? John was intrigued. Was there a return address on the letters? Asked John. 
and he wondered if it was possible that he might have found the address of Wayne. One step ahead of you, boys, said Lucy, holding up a plane ticket to London. We traced the address you gave me. You're probably looking for the address on the receipt from the London Police Museum, which matches the return address on the letters and the Polaroid photo. Ah, so it all links up, doesn't it? So it's mm. the same address has been traced... This is... It's its actually good I'm, police work. I'm excited. John and Lucy, who arrived at the airport at the same time, walked down a flight of stairs and were on their way to London in no time. They were flying with the British Royal Air Force in a special helicopter which flew low and fast across the Atlantic Ocean. And there was a huge fire on board, but the aircraft had already landed by then, so they were fine. Good to, good to know. Good to know they were fine. There was no in-flight entertainment in this helicopter, so they flew around the city at high speed for 20 minutes or so to pass the time and to get to their hotel before they headed back to London. There was a fire. <laughs> there was, there was I, just like a, I, a casual fire. I just can't get over the fact that they, they were like, it's fine, it's fine. Thanks to a quick phone call to London police, waiting for them was a very pleasant surprise. A woman who identified herself as Mrs. Denton, a British diplomat who'd given John and Lucy some directions to where the apartment was. This is the first time in my life I'm actually getting to be in the same room with someone from the UK. Mrs. Denton replied. It's not possible. You have to be accompanied by someone from London at all times. John and Lucy were both surprised by the unexpected response. And at this point, the woman raised a single eyebrow and began to speak. I'm sorry. Our customs may seem a bit harsh, but you are required to have a passport worn as a... (laughs) I'm just picturing like a, a full pal- like a full suit. It's a passport. Yeah. A bit like um you know the suits Mugabe used to wear. Yeah. Right. Exactly that. I'm sorry. Our customs may seem a bit harsh, but you are required to have a passport worn as a uniform, and you are subject to passport control every two months. Not that I would care. Well, they're pretty strict. Lucy responded, but it wasn't long before she started to laugh. And John felt he should stop laughing at this point. Mrs. Denton said, We've arranged for police backup to be made at two. Make sure you're at Wayne's house when you arrive. His apartment is in the London borough of West Hampstead upon Street. Use the underground. Take the London to Brighton via Piccolo line. and Get off at the M1. Between Heathrow and Liverpool. Use my rail card. You'll save me about a thousand pounds. That's entirely accurate geographically. Oh, I know. Yeah, no, the that's pic- The actually... Piccolo line is, is a big line here. That's my route to work. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the next morning, John met Lucy in the breakfast room at the M1 station at London Bridge and was immediately greeted by her. Are you readying yourself? He asked. I can't wait to take you up the river and see the view. Lucy replied. Also, we need to find and arrest that big fish that you're always looking for. Wayne, Wayne, your time has come, murmured John. They took the train from London to Manchester, where Mrs. Denton arranged for a police escort. John wasn't sure what was happening with Wayne and the fish, but Lucy had already put him in his place. The police broke down the front door to Wayne's home at one, slightly before two. Police! John cried. Come out where you belong! I'm gonna look for Wayne Wayne! Lucy insisted, walking into the living room and opening all of the drawers and cupboards. She looked behind the kitchen table and saw Wayne sitting on the couch in the middle of the room wearing a white button-up t-shirt and a blue striped jacket and white long-sleeved trouser trousers. Put him up, Wayne, Wayne, she said. Not so fast, Wayne replied as he picked up the two fish from the fish tank. 
He pinned Lucy and the fish together. Help, Joy! They're big fish! Screamed Lucy. John burst into the living room and grabbed Wayne by the shirt, armed with a long-handled fish rod. It's very fishing-themed all of a sudden. It's like, it's very, it's like angling central. It's like fish is the catch of the day. Looks like Wayne wants to go back to school to learn more about fish and biology. <laughs> There's our first sort of I, got him by the scruff of the neck. I, he's like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, he's like, somebody's going to be learning about fish. Lucy gasped, seeing Wayne face her with a red, angry gaze. The police led Wayne out of the house, into the courtyard of the community centre. He was searched by his mother and grandmother before being handed a mugshot, placed into the patrol car and brought to the police station, where he was questioned for nearly an hour about fish, trout fish, etc. Which, given both his criminal behaviour during childhood and fish history of illegal and unregulated harvesting, was quite the interview. Wayne was charged for fishing and illegal wildlife entanglement, as well as the murders of Slim, two counts. (laughs) (laughs) He was murdered twice. He murdered him the first time. And 13 others. His prostitution charges were dismissed, and a plea deal was struck for his organized crime in exchange for his progressive public transport policy advice. Oh! The Wayne Wayne Memorial Tramline, completed in 1996, is a testament to his efforts. What a lovely... That's a nice a nice way of giving back, isn't it? To take it, his... Because he had quite strong views about public transportation. Also, can I just say, maybe Wayne Wayne wouldn't have had to turn to crime if his views on transport policy had been listened to earlier, maybe if they'd have had a line... I've never been to Chicago, but I assume they don't have anything as good as the Piccolo line. Well, nothing's as good as the Piccolo line. Lucy went on to become a lawyer and has since worked in the cities of Winnipeg, Manitoba, South Africa and London, mainly advising on criminal defence issues and fish legislation in New Zealand. John rekindled the flame at the end of the divorce and began working tirelessly to kick his bad habit for good. And he is not immune to the side effects of his drug and alcohol addiction and has been known to enjoy a beer before a workout. Oh, he, he works out. This is like a great post-credits scene. Like, well, because he was, he was fat, wasn't he? He was fat. He had a, a flabby chest. Mrs. Denton was deported to Canada early in the afternoon of August 2008 due to a lack of documentation, but continues to have friends who have managed to secure permanent residency. And that's it. That's the end of the story. That's it? Well, I think it was quite a dramatic sort of ending scene. We had uh, a, like a bust, a police bust. It was set in London. It was set in London. It, it, there's a lot of set pieces in this. Yeah, yeah. It's a big, it's actually, it, like all of a sudden, it got really like big budget. It felt like a Michael Bay movie. Nice to see the uh, RAF getting a shout out. With their with their reliable but ultimately flammable helicopters, <laughs> very like you can go transatlantic, but there will be a fire. There will be a fire, um, and no in-flight entertainment, and that actually is a real bummer. I think that's that's the real. And the fire is fun. It's the fact that they don't have like TVs. Yeah. So, what would we want to see resolved in a sequel? In a sequel, who I'd- would we want to see developed more? I want to see actually, okay, I want to see Lucy develop more. Yeah, I think Lucy's been kind of taking the back seat. Well, that's the thing. And she, she seems quite ditzy. She seems ditzy, but I think, you know what? I think she's just starting out. Yeah. You've like, got, you got to give her some slack. She you? she will be police chief <laughs> um, one day. Yeah, we predicted she'd be home secretary, and that hasn't happened yet. We ended up with something that broadly approached a credible police story. Mm. 
I have to admit, for the first outing of this algorithm, I'm, I am quite impressed. Like, it got a lot. It had. There was times when I was I was thinking, what is going to happen next? And then it delivers a completely cool. completely irrelevant detail. Um, the, obviously, uh, what's coming across, I think, is how it gets obsessed with certain details. Um, fish. If, you don't, if you don't pull it out, yeah, fish. It suddenly got incredibly nautical very quickly. But I think we just need to keep on top of that and uh, make sure that there's actually some sort of coherent story being delivered. But yeah, I think that's a pretty I've... good first outing. I'm pretty happy with it. Yeah. This presentation of Sleepy Computer was brought to you by my daughter's first sleepover birthday party and all my co-workers. If you have a medical emergency, please consult your physician. This podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any illness. It's not a replacement for professional medical advice, nor is this podcast a panacea to health problem or health problems related to lifestyle. For example, if you're going on a four-day sleepwalk. Sleepy Computer is a podcast where the computer writes jokes for our brain with music. We use AI on artificial computers that give brain stories, and we read out the random stories while the music plays, using the same algorithm that's writing this paragraph. The music you hear is also generated by AI. We call it Sleepy Computer because the random computer-made jokes are similar to the ones that humans make when we're dreaming. Each episode, it will randomly generate a new story. We're told by the computer what to say next. And although we do not dictate the topic or the meaning of the story, we'll selectively delete bad ideas or sentences if we think they're not funny anymore or they take us too far from the original story. The stories are about 90% generated by the computer itself, and our 10% input is mainly grammar. Why not subscribe to Sleepy Computer via your favorite podcast software for automatic delivery? Just click subscribe and tell your friend who you like that they will want this too. This helps improve their opinion of you. Your friend quality is greatly increased. You can find us by visiting our website, sleepy.computer, or searching for Sleepy Computer wherever you find your podcasts.